I'm Glennon Doyle, author of Untamed and host of the podcast, We Can Do Hard Things. On We Can Do Hard Things, my wife, Abby, my sister, Amanda, and I talk honestly about the hard parts of life. Join us and guests like Michelle Obama, Tracy Ellis Ross, and Brene Brown as we have refreshingly honest conversations. New episodes are out every Tuesday and Thursday. So listen to and follow We Can Do Hard Things, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and everywhere you get your podcasts. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, TEND is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. My name is Irma Alleman, but I went by my business name, Irma Jean. And I was a cosmetologist, licensed cosmetologist. I did everything, you know, facials and manicures, pedicures, artificial nails, things like that. I met Margaret at Lulu Buris in Mandeville. She started coming to me there. And that's how we got to know each other. So we was alone all the time, Margaret and I, so we talked a lot. Another worker on the next table, she says, Irma Jean, you sound like you're a therapist or something. You think you're a psychiatrist? Telling Margaret all that stuff? I said, let me tell you something. I'm telling Margaret the truth, and it's none of your business. (laughs) When I learned about Margaret's death, I had just walked into the salon, And my two bosses came to me and brought me in the back room and said, Margaret was killed. I said, what? I said, no way. She lives in a a place where they have security and everything. They said, no, she was killed. They don't know how, but they found her dead this morning. So I broke down and cried, and I asked to leave. I couldn't continue working. I was just crying terribly. And I went home, and I just had a bad day. And And what were you uh, thinking at that point? Like, Her husband killed her. That's what I thought. It was day two of the investigation, and detectives had not made an arrest. The bizarre incident at the golf cart barn, combined with an inconsistent story about a Beauchene employee chasing a man with a knife, had both been dismissed by detectives. So they took the obvious next step, looking at Margaret's romantic partners. I'm Jed Lipinski. This is Gone South. Season one, Who Killed Margaret Kuhn? Episode two, Steel Magnolia. At the time of her death, Margaret had recently separated from her second husband, Bernard Smith, and she was seeing a new guy named Jay Fagan, who was also recently separated. In letters to friends, she reflected on her tumultuous last few months. I'm going to hold this up to you. This is the letter. She had her own little purple paper, and she had her own little initials on her little letterhead. 
That's Claire Urson again, Margaret's former aerobics instructor. I want to cry when I think about this. I want to cry. I'm going to cry when I read this. Okay. Dear Claire, I haven't seen you in such a long time. So much has happened to me in this last year. I'm sure Teresa told you that Bernard and I are separated. His idea, not mine. That was in June and made for a horrible summer. I really hated the idea of separating for the second time in my life and plus did not think it would be much fun to be 41 and single. I did also start to do therapy, which I am still doing. In the meantime, I have met a man who is a periodontist and he is 37 years old. He has treated me with such consideration that I wonder why I stayed married for seven years, exclamation mark. Well, anyway, do have a Merry Christmas and a happy 1987, and do let me hear from you and what you are doing these days. By the way, I bought a nice condo in Beauchene, so that's where I am now. I'd love for you to see it. Love, Margaret. And she signs it with her handwriting. You know, and that was the last I ever heard from her. It's not clear exactly when detectives spoke with Margaret's ex-husband, Bernard Smith, but news reports suggest he was interviewed shortly after the murder. Bernard declined repeated requests to speak with us for this project. And for whatever reason, the sheriff's case file does not contain any interviews with him. What we know about their relationship comes mainly from letters and interviews with people who knew them as a couple. They were well-educated. Margaret had college background. I mean, really, really smart. And her family was very smart and very rich inclined or very wealthy. I don't know how rich they were, but I know they had more money than I've ever seen. This is Irma Alamond, Margaret's former manicurist. They saw each other regularly for what amounted to a pretty elaborate beauty regimen. We did the facial, the massage, the waxings. Yeah, it was kind of expensive, but she she treated herself once a month for that, but uh, usually once a week was manicure. Over time, Margaret and Irma became close. After I do her services, what we did was we would go to lunch outside at a restaurant, and I, uh, and she wanted to pay for me all the time. I said, no. I said, this is how we're going to do it. I said, you pay one time, then I'll pay one time. But she always rode me in her new car. That's the first time I ever rode in a Jaguar. I mean, it was totally awesome. And the smell was just like a brand new car. It was just magnificently, the, the real wood, the real leather. I mean, it was just awesome. What were some of the things that Margaret would confide in you how the way her husband treated her, things like that, how he would leave a notes instead of speaking to her. And she would talk to him and he wouldn't speak back. He would write her a note. You know, he did that whenever he was mad at her. It was just certain things that she would say how he treated her. I just got a bad vibe. I didn't like him from what she said because she was just too nice to be treated that way. In an interview with Detective Jay Daigle, Irma said Margaret was, quote, afraid of Bernard. When she heard Margaret had been stabbed to death, 
She immediately suspected him. And I told them that I thought, and this is my belief at first, that Margaret Coon's husband killed her because he was so mean to her, the things that he did. He gave her the silent treatment, and he wouldn't talk to her for weeks, and he would write her notes and demand money. Irma dreamt that the murder weapon, which she described as a, quote, long Japan-style knife with an ivory handle, was stashed in Bernard's garage, wrapped in a white towel. She even consulted a psychic about the case, who told her that, while they weren't certain who killed Margaret, quote, the killer will be found. Margaret and Bernard had met at a bar association conference in Biloxi, Mississippi, two years after Margaret graduated from LSU Law School. They formed a private practice and moved into a beautiful house on the shore of Lake Pontchartrain. One friend described them as St. Tammany's power couple. But by 1986, the year before her death, the relationship had deteriorated. According to detectives' interviews with close friends and her former psychologist, Margaret described Bernard as mentally and verbally abusive. Bernard berated her about her spending habits and told her she, quote, was not capable of love. In a letter written six months before she died, Margaret writes of how she dreads seeing Bernard, of how vindictive he could be. In the spring of 1986, Bernard abruptly left St. Tammany to stay with his sister in California and told Margaret he wanted a divorce. He had decided to go to medical school and planned to enroll at the University of Lafayette that fall. Margaret was devastated. Her psychologist said she was, quote, desperate to have a man in her life and even seemed suicidal. But her state of mind improved that fall. By then, she'd moved to the condo in Beauchamp and was dating Jay Fagan, a handsome younger man. She seemed happy to be rid of Bernard. So when Bernard had a change of heart and suggested they patch things up, Margaret told him no. She'd already moved on. Friends said Bernard did not take it well. One of them told detectives, quote, he got real out of whack in terms of being tearful. Irma Alamon said Bernard was miserable. He thinks about her all the time. When detectives approached Bernard, he refused to take a lie detector test, but he did provide an alibi. Here's what reporter Drew Broach remembers. Well, a couple of detectives went to Lafayette, Louisiana, to interview him and ask him about Margaret. You know, they asked him, where were you the night she was killed? And I remember one of the detectives telling me that he said he was at some sort of cafeteria eating supper that night. And they asked him what he ate. And he told them what he ate that night. They went to the cafeteria and they looked at the cash register receipts. And sure enough, around the time Margaret Kuhn was killed in Beauchene, a diner ate at that cafeteria in Lafayette and ate the exact same thing that Bernard Smith had told them. In fact, according to an article in the Baton Rouge Advocate, the cafeteria manager remembered Bernard and what he ate for dinner that night. An investigator for the DA's office would later say that Bernard also provided a gas station receipt, further supporting his alibi. The sheriff's office seemed satisfied with the story. Some people we spoke with in St. Tammany still believe Bernard Smith had something to do with Margaret's murder, though they're quick to admit they have no actual evidence. 
but people who knew Margaret and Bernard as a couple doubt he was involved. The most likely person to kill you is your spouse, but I cannot imagine Bernard in that kind of situation. That's Lorraine Mall, Margaret's friend from the previous episode. When Margaret got murdered, he was really upset. I saw him a couple of days afterwards, and he could barely walk. I think he'd had on the same shirt for two days, which was really not like him. And it, he just, he was really upset. I think the fact that they got divorced didn't mean that they didn't really still care about each other. When Bernard didn't pan out, detectives turned their attention to Jay Fagan, the periodontist. Here, too, they found a complicated backstory. Fagan had recently separated from his wife, Brenda. Though according to interviews that detectives did with Margaret's friends, Brenda still came around Fagan's house, often unannounced, causing Margaret to hide or wait in the car. Margaret told one friend that Brenda sometimes crawled through the window of Jay's house to see if he had been with other women. Margaret and Jay argued over his refusal to divorce his wife. The stress plunged Margaret into what one friend called crying attacks and spells. But a few days later, she'd be glowing again, talking about how great he was. Irma Alamond remembers Margaret's excitement on Valentine's Day, just a few days before she was killed. She was excited. She said, I bought him a really expensive shirt and a bottle of wine, very expensive wine also. I said, well, I think you're spending a lot of money. She said, well, he's very special. I want to make this, you know, really good. She says, not everybody knows about our relationship, just my close friends. And uh, she said, oh, Irma, he is just so handsome. She was really falling in love with this guy. Fagan was at Margaret's condo the night before the murder. As he later told detectives, they had sat on the floor, lit a fire, and drank martinis while Fagan smoked Merritt cigarettes. They'd had sex, and Fagan spent the night. Neighbors remembered seeing his car leave her house early the next morning. That day, Margaret had called Irma to cancel her weekly manicure appointment. She and Fagan were scheduled to visit his parents in Florida for the first time, a sign that their relationship was getting serious. The next morning, she was dead. The sheriff's office file contains only one interview with Fagan, conducted in August 1989, a full two and a half years after Margaret was killed. But apparently, detectives spoke with Fagan and his estranged wife the morning after the murder. Fagan did not respond to our request for comment either, but Drew Broach remembers the substance of their conversation. She was dating this periodontist who was estranged from his wife, or, or maybe wasn't estranged, but was carrying on this affair unbeknownst to his wife. But the detectives ended up interviewing the periodontist, and he said he was with his wife the night Margaret was killed. They interviewed the wife, and she says she was with the periodontist that night. So they, unless they were colluding, they were together, and neither one of them was in Bo Shen that night. So Fagan and his wife were each other's alibis. According to the 1989 interview, after spending Wednesday night with Margaret, Fagan spent Thursday night with his sort of ex-wife at her apartment in New Orleans, and then left around 7.45 the next morning. 
He was at home when detectives knocked on his door to question him a few hours later. Fagan's answers caused them to dismiss him as a suspect. But their interest in Brenda lingered. The next day, she was read her Miranda rights and interrogated by Detective Ed Baroni. Brenda claimed she knew that Jay was dating, but did not know he was seeing Margaret. In fact, she said she didn't even know who Margaret Kuhn was. Fagan seemed to corroborate this in his interview with detectives two years later. Asked if Brenda was, quote, jealous of Margaret, Fagan said no, because she didn't know they were together. Detective Daigle then got to the point. Did Fagan think Brenda had it in her to hire a hitman to kill Margaret? Again, Fagan said no. I really don't believe she'd have it in her, he said. In the end, it didn't matter what detectives thought about Brenda, Fagan, or Bernard. There were no witnesses, no evidence, nothing tying any of them to the scene. Before we move on, though, there's one thing I should mention about that 1989 interview with Jay Fagan. Detectives were oddly preoccupied with the question of Margaret's sexuality, specifically with the idea that Margaret was gay. Detective Daigle asked Fagan if he had any indication that Margaret was homosexual or bisexual. I had no indication whatsoever, Fagan said. I did not know this. Had he heard anything about a three-way sex affair Margaret may have been involved in? No, Fagan said. He wasn't aware of that either. Daigle then asked, Did you and Margaret participate in what normal people would consider unusual or particularly strange sex? No, Fagan responded. No peculiar sex. Remember, that interview took place two and a half years after Margaret was murdered. By then, investigators had learned a lot more about Margaret's personal life. But in the early days of the investigation, they knew almost nothing about her. And since the ex-husband, the boyfriend, and the boyfriend's wife weren't panning out, detectives had to widen their lens. To do that, they'd need to go deeper into Margaret's past. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. It's after bedtime, the kids are asleep, and the moms are out to play. We're Dina and Kristen, the duo behind the Instagram account, Big Little Feelings. I'm Dina, I'm a child therapist and mom of two who nerds out on all things neurobiology and psychology, and Kristen is a parent coach who wrangles three kids on a daily basis, here to give it to us like it is. We weren't meant to do this parenting thing alone. Consider After Bedtime your village. Follow After Bedtime with Big Little Feelings on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu.
Hey friends, this is Jen Hatmaker, your happy host of the For the Love podcast. You may wonder how I got into this podcasting thing. Well, I'm a speaker and an author who has happened to write a few New York Times bestselling books that really resonated with a pretty large community of women. And I thought, how great would it be to drop into the ears of this growing community every week via the magic of podcasting? So that's what we did. And I'm delighted to say we've been able to spark a bit of delight and uncover some hope and talk with great people about the big and small things that we care about and that affect our lives on the daily. So I'm thrilled to invite you to join me every Wednesday for new episodes of the For the Love podcast, where you'll hear the most incredible conversations with some of the best people on this planet. We're going to bring you moments of connection and laughter and hot takes on the things we care about going on in the world. So listen to and follow For the Love with Jen Hatmaker a Four Eyes Media production presented by Odyssey. You can get it on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. She drives up in a brand new Mercedes. And we had like a 20-year-old Volvo. <laughs> this is Rick Normand. He met Margaret during their first year at LSU Law School in Baton Rouge. This was 1971 to 1974. People had long hair, holes in their jeans, T-shirts with band names on it, you know, that kind of thing. She just had everything, a Cartier watch, diamonds, you know, dressed like a runway model every day, hair done, makeup done. She didn't look like the rest of us. Margaret grew up in Alexandria, Louisiana, a country town 200 miles north of New Orleans. Her parents owned a piano store, but that's not how they made their money. Her father had inherited a great deal of land and had pecan orchards and cotton and soybeans and all that. Her father was extremely tight with his money, but the mother was extremely lavish. She dressed Margaret all through high school, she took Margaret to the best dress shops, the best clothes. Margaret was an only child, and her parents spoiled her. In high school, she was a member of the National Honor Society and voted senior with the finest character. After graduating from the University of Mississippi, she married her high school sweetheart, an Air Force pilot, and relocated to Keesler Military Base in Biloxi, where she taught kindergarten for a while. But she had bigger ambitions. So she applied to law school. I think there were 500 people in the class, and there were fewer than 10 women. She had so many men comment on her, high, beautiful, things like that, every day. What you're doing after school, beautiful. In the very first semester, uh, a teacher walked up to her and said, what are you doing in law school? You don't belong here. You really should just go to Hollywood and be a movie star the way you look. And she said, I don't want to be a movie star. I want to be a lawyer. I think she came to have a very negative opinion of men. Margaret persevered and graduated from LSU in 1975. By then, she had divorced her first husband, and she soon established a private practice in Mandeville. The simplest thing to say about Margaret is whatever she was doing, she was dedicated to it. This is Linda Floyd, a clinical psychologist who became friends with Margaret in the late 70s. The two collaborated on a few cases together. Linda remembers one in particular. It was a pro bono case. 
and she asked me to uh, see her client and um, offer an opinion about, it actually was a, a case involving an interdiction. An interdiction is when a court is asked to determine if someone is capable of handling their own finances and other personal freedoms. Margaret's client had a very low IQ, and she was about to receive a large sum of money from a personal injury settlement. Her relatives thought she wouldn't be able to manage the money and tried to intervene against her will. The call from Margaret started with, uh, Linda, I have a client who has an IQ of 65. An IQ of 65 is sub substantial disability. It falls in the category of uh, mild mental retardation. So Margaret said, um, let's try to protect this woman. My response was, an IQ of 65 is an IQ of 65. Um, I'm not going to get a different number. And she was, as Margaret could be, very persistent and suggested that there were other things to see besides this IQ score. Margaret and Linda devised a different evaluation that involved more than just an IQ test. I ended up going to the woman's house and making an assessment of her capacity to function. And I went there three times and questioned her, what do y'all eat? Show me the cupboard. Well, how's the washing machine work? How do you get in touch with the doctor? Where's the drugstore? And Margaret was right. The woman was really quite functional. So she followed through to the state Supreme Court and won. She was determined to have this lady be allowed to live independently. Margaret was building a strong reputation as a lawyer. She was a true advocate for her clients, tough, dedicated, detail-oriented, and effective. But despite her achievements, she continued to face sexism in the courtroom. On one occasion, I was with Margaret. We were in court, and the judge uh, stopped the activity and chastised Margaret for having worn a pantsuit to court suggested to her that this was inappropriate attire and that he wasn't sure that he was going to hear the case, given that she was disrespectful. The judge's critique of her outfit didn't sit well with Margaret. She ate him alive. She explained to him that there was no such precedent and that she could dress in whatever way that she deemed appropriate. And um, he backed down and he heard the case and we won. Margaret's confidence, her sense of style, her compassion and self-reliance, it seems to have come from her mother. In 1977, Elizabeth Kuhn died abruptly of cancer. In the eulogy that Margaret wrote and delivered, she might as well have been describing herself. Quote, She had an identity apart from us encompassing a great deal more than restricted social roles. She was an independent woman who cared about people around her and her own work and herself. In 1980, Margaret joined the St. Tammany District Attorney's Office, becoming its only female prosecutor at the time. Here's Lorraine Mulligan. It was very much a man's world, and the District Attorney's Office was very, very much a man's world. There was the occasional DA in Orleans Parish that were female. But in St. Tammany, Margaret was, back then, the only one. Margaret was an underdog, and at the DA's office, she defended underdogs. She specialized in sex crimes and immediately found success. Her first year on the job, she won maximum sentences for a handful of first offender child abusers, a rare achievement. In the wake of her death, her former boss, District Attorney Walter Reed, told reporters, her heart went out to the kids who were abused and the women who had been battered. In her role as a state prosecutor in 1980s Louisiana, 
Margaret performed a delicate balancing act. She was a cultured Southern gal. I believe the term is still Magnolia. This is Margaret's former colleague, Tom Mull, who you heard from in the previous episode. She was the first female president of the St. Tammany Bar. She had the respect and admiration uh, of every attorney uh, in St. Tammany who, who knew her at all. She just had this ability to combine her femininity with her toughness in such a way that she became a very credible prosecutor. She talked to me a lot about her cases and how This is Irma Alamond again. So I asked, I said, Margaret, I said, you're not afraid of these people because these are some bad people. She said, Irma, what you have to do is put your foot down right away. Don't let them take control of the conversation. You tell them, you want some more years to your uh, sentence? I can put it there. She said, I want you to come and see how I handle those bad guys in court. But Margaret's toughness in the courtroom came at a cost. I think in terms of the people that she prosecuted, it was almost like adding insult to injury that this beautiful blonde woman was responsible for their jail sentence. It would surprise me that that might not have had some sort of um, head trip on some of the people that she was prosecuting. Once the sheriff's office had ruled out Margaret's husband, boyfriend, and the boyfriend's ex, they began to look at the dozens of men Kuhn had prosecuted during her nearly six years with the DA's office. It was a daunting task. Detectives spent weeks poring over cases that Kuhn tried, searching for what they called a revenge motive. Many of the men were still locked up. Others seemed to have moved away, but one stood out. His name was Charles Muley. Muley was a cop from Slidell, another small town in St. Tammany. He specialized in undercover work and was the sergeant in charge of sexual offenses. But in 1985, he was charged with sexually abusing four teenage girls he was pretending to counsel. Margaret had built the case against Muley and gotten him indicted on 25 counts of rape and molestation. She was preparing to prosecute him at trial. But on May 11, 1986, the first day of jury selection, Muley disappeared. He was somebody from her past who had an adversarial relationship with her. They're going to look at him. I don't really know how such a small place with such an exterior charm could host so many ghastly scenes. Sexual abuse and pedophile rings. I asked myself, why did you let her live? He said she was just too pretty to kill. The FBI gets a call from somebody in Florida saying, I've seen that guy. If you have tips or information that you'd like to share related to the unsolved murder of Margaret Kuhn or other relevant topics, you can call us at 650-746-GONE or email us at gonesouthpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to Gone South, a direction and production of C13 Originals, a Cadence 13 company. Executive produced by Chris Corcoran of Cadence 13, along with John Liebman, Ken Lee, and Jared Shear. Written and narrated by me, Jed Lipinski. Directed by Lloyd Lockridge. 
Produced by Tom Lipinski. Edited by Alistair Sherman, with assistant editing by Molly Nugent. Research and production support by Ian Mont and Paige Heimson. Recording and engineering by Bob Tabador, Bill Schultz, and Sean Cherry. And mixed and mastered by Chris Basil. Original music written and performed by Casey Wayne McAllister. Marketing and publicity by Brian Swarth, Moira Curran, Hilary Schuff, and Josephina Francis. Cadence 13 is an Odyssey company. Relationships are hard, and that's why I'm here. Hey friend, it's Cammie Crawford. Think of me as your big sister slash audible BFF that you could always trust to give you the real tea. This is my show, Relationship, the advice podcast that covers all relationship topics. Send your story to hello at relationshippod.com or DM me at relationship on IG and tune in for new episodes every Friday. Listen and follow Relationship with Cammie Crawford on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.